may be seated. I failed to mention, as we began our service, that Pastor Michael is, uh, had, had to leave early. You may have heard uh, Johnny mention General Assembly this week in Memphis, Tennessee. So uh, I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if Pastor Michael's walking in Memphis yet, as the song says. But he had to leave early because of, um, because of committee meetings that happened on Monday. So um, please continue to pray for not just Pastor Michael, but other elders from this church who will be going, and all the elders in, um, in uh, Memphis who will be doing the business of our national church. So I'm going to ask you to turn now to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at the first four verses of this great passage of Scripture today for our sermon. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4, before we stand for the reading of God's Word, let us pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our sermon time together. Let's pray. Dear Father, you have spoken by your Spirit through your Word. And as we'll see in a moment, you have spoken also, finally, by your Son, So as we look at these four verses, we pray, Heavenly Father, that your Spirit will lead and guide our discussion, that you will open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, that we may see glorious things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I will ask you to stand in honor of God's Word as we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add to to his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. You're already seating. Sitting. The last time I was had the privilege of being in this pulpit, and I want to thank Michael and the elders uh, the session for allowing me to giving me this great honor of preaching today. The last time I was in this pulpit, you may remember, was Palm Sunday, just a few weeks ago. And on that occasion, as we looked at what is traditionally called the triumphal entry of Jesus, I pointed out, as 
as Jesus came into the holy city to die and rise again, that there was an anticipation of his eventual coronation as the king of kings to go at God the Father's right hand. And that coronation would eventually happen as Jesus ascended into heaven to take his seat in the heavenly throne room. So today, as we look at this short yet eminently profound introduction to the epistle of Hebrews, we see the sequel, if you will, of that scene of anticipation. We see the result of Jesus' coronation, that he, Jesus, has taken a place forever to rule and reign with his heavenly Father in glory. And in many ways, this is one of the clearest presentations of the supremacy of Christ in the entire Bible. These verses represent a key text in explaining not just who Jesus is, but really the message of the entire Bible. This introduction, sometimes called the prologue to the epistle of the book of Hebrews, also summarizes in just four verses the entire 13-chapter book of Hebrews. As we look at this text, we learn very clearly about the supremacy of Jesus. Now, a part of me uh, doesn't like the way I think this passage natural outline flows from the text. Three points about Jesus' supremacy would seem adequate. The three-point sermon gives the hearer and the preacher a certain satisfaction and completeness. And of course, it points us nicely to the triune nature of our God. This is not a three-point message. And also, as a Calvinist, it would be nice, if it would it not, if this passage were laid out more naturally as a five-point sermon. But alas, I don't quite read it that way either. No, this passage, I think, naturally outlines itself in four points regarding the nature and supremacy of the Son of God. So if it helps, let's think of it like a four-legged stool or chair on which the eternal glory of Christ rests. The writer of Hebrews, perhaps Paul, though we are not certain, summarizes the absolute awesomeness of our Jesus in four main points, and they are these. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus is the final word. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. Verse 3, Jesus is the purifier, the purifier. And fourth and finally, verses 3 and 4, Jesus is the reigning king, the reigning king, the king of kings, as we touched on last time I was here. The final word, the creator and sustainer, the purifier and the reigning king. Let's take a look at these points one by one. And, uh, and I will read uh, each of these verses again as we kind of walk through the passage. Verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. We as uh, Reformed Christians understand, maybe as well as anyone, that God speaks. Francis Schaeffer, a famous Presbyterian minister, told us in the 70s that he, that is God, is there and he's not silent. 
God speaks to us human beings his highest creation. And because we are created in his image, that means, among other things, that God can communicate with us. And so he does. We also believe that God speaks not just in natural revelation, that is, through the created universe and through our innate sense of right and wrong, but he speaks to us in what we also call, uh, he also speaks to us in what we call special revelation. This is the idea that God communicates a direct message to us so that it can be heard or read, received and understood. Again, we are created in the image of this God who speaks. Now, in the days of the patriarchs and Moses and the kings of Israel, you know what we call the Old Testament times. God spoke through the prophets. And we, of course, additionally believe that all direct communications that God had with men back then was captured in the Hebrew Bible. God spoke through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. Then God spoke sometimes, as we've been learning the last several Lord's days, through the judges, then through David. Then the prophets came along. God spoke through Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Obadiah, Micah, and finally Malachi. All of these men had a direct link to God, and they communicated God's word to the Hebrew people primarily by way of prophecy. And we still have that word today. That word, those words are preserved in the Old Testament scriptures. But according to the writer of Hebrews, in these two verses, we now have a better word, a superior word, a word that has come in these last days, and that word is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if this seems familiar to you, it should. This is what we read about today in John chapter 1, the Apostle John's prologue to his gospel. The Greek word translated word that we read in most English translations is logos or logos. Jesus is the logos. This carries a lot of meaning, but at the very least, the meaning has to do with Jesus communicating God's word to us in his person. Jesus is the living word. He is God's word to us in the person of his son. God speaks to us through Jesus. And his word, his living word, is final. There's no word coming our way that will be better. There is no word that will supplant Jesus as superior because Jesus is superior to all other words. This is why we as Christians reject the idea that one would come later to supplant or replace the word, the communication that is Jesus. Our Islamic friends don't have a better word in Muhammad in the Quran. The Mormons don't have a better revelation in their Book of Mormon and through Joseph Smith. The message Jesus, Jesus came to communicate is final. It cannot be improved. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson says of the idea that a message would come that is better than Jesus is stupid. His words, not mine. 
But the, the writer of Hebrews seems to agree with this sentiment, doesn't he? There, there doesn't need to be a greater communication to us than what Jesus came to communicate because of who he is and what he has done, which we'll talk about what he has done in a minute, but, or who he is in a minute. But Jesus' word to us is the best word. It doesn't get any better despite what a beer company tried to communicate to us back in the 80s and 90s. Remember, remember that commercial? I looked it up because I couldn't remember. It was old Milwaukee. These guys would be doing something manly, like you know, be hunting or fishing. And afterward, they would sit around a campfire drinking their swill, and they say, guys, it doesn't get any better than this. Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> much, much, much better. That's why we say the gospel is the good news. Not good news generally or a good news story, but instead we say that the good news of Jesus is the best news that will ever or has ever been told. It can't get better than that. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the word to end all words. Now, we kind of need to be careful here when we talk about this because of what this does not mean when we say that Jesus is the final word. We do not mean that we receive his communication to us by sort of a download. And it's important to make this distinction because we hear it a lot, don't we? Uh, People will say, Jesus said to me, fill in the blank, right? Beth Moore, for example, once testified that Jesus told her to brush a man's hair. Okay, maybe. <laughs> what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the Word? Uh, what, uh, what we do not mean when we say that Jesus is the Word that, is that He speaks, we do not mean that He speaks directly to us in the same way that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush or Isaiah or Jonah. So how does Jesus speak to you and to me today? Well, through the written word. This is why we preach the Bible. This is why we read the Bible. This is why individually we should be reading and studying the scriptures. Jesus, the living word, is revealed to us in the written word of God. Jesus is here in Hebrews, in the Gospels, And really on all the pages of the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us that Jesus is coming. The bulk of the New Testament tells us that he is here. And then portions of the Old and the New Testament tell us that Jesus is coming again. My point is the fact that that Jesus is the living word does not mean that we do not need the written word to know that. I had a colleague in the chaplain corps tell me, a friend who himself would admit that he was theologically to the left, shall we say, that he no longer believed in the Bible as God's word, but that he believed that Jesus is the word of God. Well, that's interesting, right? That sounds very much like what the writer of Hebrews is saying, doesn't it? After all, verses 1 and 2 do say that Jesus is the final word. 
And some, and to some, that idea that Jesus is the living word, but the Bible is not necessarily a greater authority than Jesus, might even sound spiritual and with the bonds of what we might call Christian orthodoxy. Now, we don't have time to get into a full theology of the inspiration of Scripture, but here's the deal. We can only know that Jesus is the Word, Jesus is God's final Word to us, because the Word, the Bible, declares it to us in no uncertain terms. So basically, we learn that Jesus is the living Word because the written Word says it. This Word... This written word is inspired and authoritative and tells us that Jesus is God's final word. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. That's how. The writer of Hebrews starts off by reminding us that the word revealed in Jesus is far superior to the word revealed by Moses and the prophets. But that's not all he tells us. In verses 2 and 3, he tells us something that is perhaps even more wonderful and amazing. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. Verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These two verses, in a sense, say everything you could ever need to know about Jesus. And that's because if he is the eternal God-man, then what else can be said? But let's break these verses down to make a feeble attempt to understand the majesty of our Savior. The writer of Hebrews begins by telling us that Jesus is the heir of all things. All things. Not some things, not lots of things, not a fortune of gold, silver, and Bitcoin, but all things. Why is he the heir of all things? Well, because of who he is and what he has done. First, who he is. He's not only the final word to us who will inherit all things, but he is the creator of and sustainer of all that exists. Again, we talked about John chapter 1 at the risk of belaboring the point. Remember what the Apostle John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything made that was made. Now let's stop and think about this. Yes, this is what Christians have confessed for centuries. But it bears repeating over and over and is something we should, we should really dwell on daily. Jesus is the one who created all things. Not only was he with God the Father in eternity past, but he also created everything. That's what the Apostle John says, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says. There are other passages that teach this as well, but for now, we'll just stick to those two. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Jesus, before he took on human flesh in a little backwater town in first century Palestine, spoke and the universe came into existence. 
Should there be any question about whether Jesus is better than Moses and the prophets of Israel? Should there be any question about whether he is better than best? But wait, there's more. The writer of Hebrews asserts that Jesus not only created the world, but that he sustains it. Now, I know this is what the Bible teaches, it's what we confess, and it's what we proclaim at Christmas, the incarnation that uh, the incarnation is what we proclaim at Christmas, that Jesus is the creator, he's the sustainer, he's God in the flesh. But we've got to let this truth sink in to really understand the point that this passage is making in the book of Hebrews. Jesus not only created the universe and all that is in it, but he keeps it going. He holds it together. The world... The universe in which we exist was brought into being by the Son of God and he makes it so that it doesn't fall apart. This means that the air that you and I breathe, the molecules in our body, yea, verily, every atom in the universe is held together by none other than Jesus Christ. He actually sustains the universe so that it doesn't implode on itself. Cosmologists and astronomers call this idea the cosmological constant. Secular scientists really don't understand it because they really don't believe and embrace the God of the Bible. Some of them may claim to believe in God, but by and large, they don't. So this cosmological constant is the way they express the gravitational formulas and other principles of physics that keep the world, solar system, and universe all in their places. Basically, the cosmological constant is the math that explains the existence and sustainment of the universe. But they really don't know why the universe exists. They, they talk about wormholes and singularities and the multiverse, which has made its way into popular culture through movies and such things. They are searching for a theory of everything that helps help explains it all, but they don't know. They don't know, and they never will until they embrace the God of creation. But we, those of us who name the name of Christ, know what this thing is. It's not just numbers and universal physical principles, what we call science, that explains everything. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who not just set the stars in the sky and makes it so they burn, but, but he also makes it so they burn and they don't collapse into nothingness. This is who the Son of God is. This is who we follow and worship. He's not just a prophet who's the final word. He's not just an agent of creation as the Jehovah's Witnesses maintain. He is the one who created and sustains, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, everything. He is the creator, sustainer, and giver of all things. This is who Jesus is. And because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, we can say with confidence that not only does he look like God, but he is God. The writer says that he, meaning Jesus, is the exact imprint of his nature. That is, whatever it is that makes God God, 
Jesus has that essence, the divine essence. Jesus is exactly like God because he is God. He contains all the attributes of God and he shares them with the Father and the Spirit. Should there be any doubt about his greatness? Should there be any doubt about his wonderfulness? Should there be any doubt about why the book of Hebrews, just three verses into the writer's argument, we see a figure far above anyone else we could even dream up in our wildest imaginations or, in, or we would read about in a Marvel comic book. Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the creator and sustainer, but that's not all. He's also the purifier of those who come to him in faith. It almost seems like a throwaway line given the fact that we've just been told that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. But we are told in verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll get to the sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high in point four, but, but did you notice what Jesus did before he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? He made purification for sins. We recently got these filters installed on both our heat pumps at our house. These filters perform the function, so we're told, of purifying the air we breathe in the house. I say, so we're told, because at least at first you really can't see the results of these high-technology purifying thingamabobs. And so you really have to trust that the filters are doing their work. And many of us can benefit from this kind of technology it indeed, if it indeed works, right? Uh, especially with all the allergens in the air, maybe especially those dreaded Carolina pines. If the air is not purified, it can cause epic sneezing spells and puffiness of the eyes and outright sickness. If the air quality is, is bad enough, uh, it, it can cause us to be very, very sick. Just this past week, the air quality issue, uh, there was an air quality issue as a result of these fires up in, uh, up in Canada. So we can all relate to needing to have a very, the very air around us purified so that we can function in, a world, uh, in the world without having to constantly carry a hanky to blow our nose and capture our sneezes. There's a cough just to prove my point. <laughs> And isn't it interesting that these impurities from which the air we breathe needs to be purified are invisible to the naked eye. But the fact that we can't see these these impurities doesn't, doesn't make them any less real. We see the results because we sneeze. We sometimes struggle to breathe, even to the point of wheezing or coughing. So what does that have to do with Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3? Well, you and I, of course, need to be purified. We need to be cleansed. And I think that we sometimes underestimate the depth of the purification we need. When pollen season has kind of run its course and the air quality is good because there are no forest fires causing issues, or when we have a purifying system that makes us less aware of our need for clean air, we tend to forget our need for purification. But in ourselves, you see, we have this impurity in our hearts and in our lives, and it's called sin. And unless we are cleansed from this impurity, 
We won't sneeze. We we won't rub our eyes. We will die an eternal death. The Bible tells us that we are impure. We have sin because we are impure, and we sin because we are impure. We sin because we are sinners, and we are impure because we have impurities. However, However we say it, the Bible is clear, we are sinners. Our hearts are dirty and nasty like the air from that forest fire, and it needs to be cleansed. Our hearts need to be cleansed. And even though our sinful impurity is sometimes imperceptible to us because it is largely invisible, in light of the holiness of God, we are indeed impure. And here the writer of Hebrews reminds us that before he ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus made purification for sins. He made purification for sins. Whose sins? Our sins, those for whom he died, those of us who believe in him and trust his bloody cross to save us. We are the ones who are and will be purified by the final word and creator called the Son of God, even Jesus. We need to be made pure because apart from some purification process, we are disgusting in God's sight. And the thing from which we must be purified is much worse than pollen or residual smoke. We are an impure mess in our sin. But in Jesus, we are made whole. We are made right. We are made clean. We are made pure. What does Isaiah say? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We read Isaiah 51, where David prays that God will purify him, and he does. Now, the writer of Hebrews will go on and spend considerable ink uh, after describing Jesus as the purifier of sins as, to us as uh, better than the priests of the Old Testament. Better even than the great high priest, Aaron even. Jesus, we learn, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek with no beginning or end. That means, as we read in chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews, that Jesus can and does save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, uh, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost. Save completely. Jesus completely saves those who come to him by faith. How? How does he do this? Well, I don't understand it any more than I understand how the air purifiers in my house work to remove invisible particles to keep me from sneezing so much. But the Bible tells me, the Bible tells us, That when we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we are made right with God, and he cleanses or, or purifies us for the sake of his name. Apart from faith in Jesus, we are a dirty, disgusting mess. But because he purifies us when we trust in him, his perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, because of this, we are purified from our sins and made creatures New creatures in him. New creatures ready to serve Jesus. Our final word 
Jesus, our creator and sustainer. Jesus, our purifying savior. We are new creatures ready and able to serve our reigning king. We learn in these last two verses that Jesus is now reigning and ruling from on high at the right hand of his and our heavenly father. Verse 4, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As I said last time and in my introduction today, this coronation was prefigured in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews has already told us that Jesus was an heir of all things in verse 1. And now we see his, in, his inheritance is a name more excellent than we can imagine. The name above every name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the currently reigning king of the universe. How do we know? Because he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits at the right hand of the Father. This, of course, is a description of Jesus' ascension into heaven after he completed his earth here, uh, work on earth to take his rightful place on God's royal throne. Notice, by the way, that he sits. Why does he sit? Because his work is complete. His atonement for the sins of his people has happened. His children have been purified. They have been made whiter than snow. And now Jesus sits as if to rest from his work. But he also, he also sits on the throne prepared for him before the foundation of the world. A throne so glorious and lovely that only Jesus can sit there. Only Jesus, because only Jesus is the final word. Only Jesus is the creator and sustainer who took on flesh. Only Jesus can and has purified us from our sins by the blood of his cross. Only Jesus is ruling and reigning on David's royal throne from heaven because of who he is and what he has done for sinners like you and for me and like me. The writer of Hebrews goes on to point out in this first chapter that Jesus fulfills over and over again the Old Testament prophecies that told us he would come and then reign from heaven until finally in verse 13, we see the culmination of it all. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer, of course, is that God the Father never says something like this to an, uh, to an angel. It can only be the Son of God, Jesus, to which he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your seat. The right hand of favor the right hand of power, the right hand of ruling and reigning. That's where Jesus is currently, and it is where he remains forever, ruling and reigning over his creation, his people, his church, and making his enemies a footstool, crushing all those who oppose him and his kingdom. And you know, we need to be reminded of this, don't we? We need to be reminded that Jesus is ruling and reigning because we live in a world where it is it's hard to see that sometimes. We live in a world where the devil, the prince of the power of the air, seems to have free reign. When we see the death and destruction and wickedness and wars all around, 
We're tempted to despair and say, Jesus, why do you allow your enemies to prosper? Father God, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot against you and against your Messiah? And our earthly kings? Oh, man. (laughs) We need to embrace this concept of Jesus as king and believe it and, and proclaim it, if for no other reason than to keep us from despairing when we see the kings and the princes that this world has to offer. Because if we trust these kings and princes rather than the one true king and prince, Jesus, we will ultimately be disappointed and, yes, fall into despair. But not so with King Jesus. You know, this past week, the current president and the most recent president, uh, last most recent president, got themselves in legal trouble. And whatever you think about the charges against former President Trump or the evidence that President Biden was taking bribes when he was vice president, these, no, these news stories should remind us uh, that, that, uh, that all kings, princes, and rulers of this earthly realm have feet of clay. They are all of them, no exceptions, sinners in need of purification, just like you and me. May we never, and I mean never, trust our politicians, our elected or appointed leaders, in the same way we trust Jesus. Shame on us if we do so. And I'm preaching to myself here because I sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that these kings are actually on my side. These kings of earth are broken, sinful, and yes, sometimes profoundly corrupt. But as discouraging as that can be, we should be encouraged that it is decidedly not true of King Jesus. He's perfect. And he rules and reigns with a perfect power and might that we cannot even begin to comprehend. So should we really, when we think about uh, these earthly kings, be discouraged when we see them fail? No. Because, Because it should be a reminder to those of us who trust in King Jesus, that we have a monarch who will never let us down. He will never fail us, never leave us, nor forsake us. He is the once and future king to whom all other kings will ultimately bow. And there's so much more that could be said about Jesus as king, but just, just, uh, just so there's so much more that can be said about him being the final word and the creator and the purifier and all those things we've already talked about. But I just want to wrap this up by talking to you about the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. And I want to talk about it. I want to encourage you to read it, of course. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so, maybe even today, the Lord's Day. But I want to talk about it because I think it helps us make a general application of these great truths that we've already talked about. The truths that Jesus is the final word, the creator and the sustainer, the purifier, the reigning king. Yes, but also the truth that is contained in really the entire book of Hebrews. Now, the writer of Hebrews was exhorting and warning his original listeners to not go back to Judaism, but to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, and to persevere in the faith despite the great pressures to go back, or at least to renounce Jesus. That really seems to be the purpose of the book of Hebrews. To urge Christians to keep on keeping on, if you will. To turn their eyes upon the Savior. Look full in His face so that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace, as the hymn says. That's the purpose of the letter to the Hebrews, which, by the way, was very likely a sermon that was circulated as a letter, but that's another discussion. But to accomplish the task of keeping Christians faithfully in the hands of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews stressed over and over again, this is the truth. This, uh, are, you, are you ready now? This is the truth. Summarizing the book of Hebrews and all its deep and mind-blowingly deep theology in just three words. Three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's it. That's the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. But it certainly is one of the most profound truths any of us could ever profess. Jesus is better. Better than what or whom? Well, anyone or anything. That's what. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than David. He's better than angels, as we saw in verse 4. He's better than the sacrificial system and other systems of both God and man. He is better. It is seriously, really and truly, it, it doesn't get any better than Jesus. Despite what some guys, you know, marketing executives at a beer company might try to tell you. And that's really it. That's the application. That is how we apply these great and precious and profound truths and the, of these four, four verses and really the whole book of Hebrews. Whenever you're tempted to despair, remind yourself that Jesus is better. Whenever your grief seems like it will overwhelm you, remind yourself that Jesus is better. He's better and stronger than your grief. Whenever you are tempted to sin against God and His law and His calling to live in a holy way, remember, Jesus is better than any pleasures that this life can offer. And whenever you are tempted to think that you can somehow purify yourself by your own good works, just remember that Jesus' good works are infinitely better than your own. He, Jesus, is better. He's better because he's God's final word to us in these last days. He is better because he created and sustains the universe and everything that is in it, including us. He is better because he has purified and continues to purify his people. And he is better because he is our gracious redeemer and king. Believe that today, and if you, don't believe, if you don't believe it already, and if you already believe that Jesus is better, believe it again. Jesus, our King, our purifying Creator, Sustainer, our final word, our living word, is better. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, sometimes the most Simple truths are the most profound ones. And the simple truth that Jesus is better is something we need to carry with us each and every moment of each and every day. Thank you for these great and high and exalted verses that remind us of who Jesus is, that he is our king, that he is our purifier, that he is our creator and our sustainer, and that he is your final word to us, Heavenly Father. We thank you, in summary, that Jesus is better. Help us to live as if that were true. 
In your name we pray, Jesus, the better one. Amen.